Welcome to the Quadcast, a Yale Divinity School podcast series dedicated to reflection on contemporary religious issues. In this episode, graduate student Emily Judd interviews Yale University spiritual leader Chaplain Sharon Kugler. She discusses the most common spiritual issue students face. They're feeling a shift in how they're understanding themselves as adults in their faith. Um, and a certain degree of uncertainty is part of that. Um, And I always say, that's good news. That means you're spiritually awake. Chaplain Kugler weighs in on how her office helps handle issues that arise between religious students and intolerant professors. Students learn that they don't have to defend all of Islam or all of Hinduism because of a dismissive remark that a faculty member made in class. And Chaplain Kugler talks about the moment she became the first woman, the first layperson, and the first Catholic in the position of Yale chaplain. Of the three things, I think the biggest challenge was the fact that I was the first woman. And that kind of surprised me because I figured in 2007 we'd be past that. Welcome, Chaplain Kugler, to the podcast. Thank you. It's good to be here. Now, what is the role of a college chaplain? It's hard to describe it in a succinct way. I teach an entire class at the Div School about chaplaincy in college. Um, It's, you know... Administratively, it's the person that is responsible for the religious and spiritual communities that are on the campus, Um, and that can look um, different depending on the particular campus. At Yale, I oversee, um, I have a staff of 10, and within that staff are six chaplains. Some are affiliated with particular faith traditions, and others um, are more generalists who work across um, traditions. So I, I certainly act as an advocate for religious and spiritual life on campus. Um, But I think the most important role of the college chaplain is to be that nerve exposed to the pain, that presence to the entire campus community in times of joy and sorrow. So I'm, you know, celebrant in chief when we have commencement and joyful times, and also a person that can lead a community through um, times of sorrow and... um, and challenge. And so that can be local, or it could be something that's a world event that's happened. Now, you mentioned that you oversee different chaplains. Mm -hmm. Um, As the university, university chaplain at Yale, you oversee Protestant, Muslim, Hindu, and Buddhist initiatives. Yeah, life on campus. Why are the Catholic and Jewish centers, the Catholic center, St. Thomas More in the Jewish center, Slivka, why are they off-campus ministries? Well, they're technically on campus because of where they're physically located, but they have independent boards uh, and rather large facilities that are cared for by um, and staffs uh, that are contained within each organization. The chaplaincy works to collaborate with these independent ministries as much as we can. And again, they're part of Yale Religious Ministries, so they have a formal um, agreement with the university to work with us. No, is there something with the history? I heard, um, and I can't remember exactly which professor I heard it from, that the the Catholic and Jewish centers originally were outside of Yale um, because maybe at some point Catholic and Jewish students weren't as welcome at Yale. Yeah, there was a time when Catholics and Jews weren't welcome, or there was a quota. They were welcome in limited um, amounts. And so certainly 
those communities look to take care of themselves and mm. offer support, but it's kosher food, a place to have mass. Um, and so, yeah, there's, that's in the history. Uh, but the robustness of those communities, which are both very large, the Catholics are the single largest um, denomination uh, on campus, uh, is a result of, you know, the university ultimately having open arms to expanding who's here. Now, let's talk about the specifics of Yale students. You mentioned mm-hmm. Catholics, which now account for 25% mm-hmm. of all undergrads. Jewish students are about 16%. Muslims are about 3 Hindus about 3%. And Buddhists about 2%. These statistics are representing the religious identities of students when they come to Yale as freshmen. In the 12 years that you've been at Yale, how have the religious demographics changed? I think the amount of students who would say that they're agnostic um, or not claim any particular religious identity has increased a bit. So agnostic, what is the difference between that and atheist? So an atheist would say um, they don't believe in God. An agnostic would say they're um, neutral they haven't. They don't claim a particular faith or religious community as their own, um, but, but they believe not. In pardon? Do they believe they in God? I think that there's variations within the thoughts of of agnostics, um, and I certainly see that with students who will. They're looking for a community. They're not interested in particular faith claims to identify what that community is going to be for them, but. Um, I've seen, yeah, I've definitely seen those numbers go up, uh, but it's very fluid. Uh, this is not only with undergraduates, but we see with graduate students, and I would say faculty and staff too, but more so with students when you're exploring new um, intellectual traditions and different schools of thought and philosophies, uh, and, and of course, exposure to these different cultures, that's going to shift for you over the time of your education. What is the most common faith-related crisis you see students facing when they come to your office? I, I think the most common, and I always, I always preface this when the students come to me and talk about feeling doubt, that that's a good thing. And that's very uncomfortable for them to hear because they think somehow they've fallen short, that they came up in a particular religious tradition, they're emerging adults now on campus, and suddenly the things they were taught as children aren't ringing true, or they're feeling a shift in how they're understanding themselves as adults in their faith. Um, And a certain degree of uncertainty uh, is part of that. Um, And I always say, that's good news. That means you're spiritually awake. That means you're wondering about these things. You're not just passively taking in what has been fed to you over time, and you're engaging with it and, and being a critical thinker. And that's going to, you're going to come out the other side. It may be messy. And certainly for parents whose children are shifting how they're identifying as people of faith or not, um, it can feel like a judgment on how they were, how they raised their son or daughter. Um, But I always take it as good news that they're paying attention. You know, it's one thing to just go through the motions of belonging to a religious or spiritual community. It's another thing to actually really live and breathe it. And, um, and test it. You know, religions can stand the test. Um, and I think there's also the, the notion that there may be one truth, but we're always learning more about it. I'm always learning more about my faith tradition 
because of what the young people are embodying is how they're trying to live it. So it's a fluid thing. Now, you mentioned families, which I think (laughs) can be a really tough uh, thing to maneuver as students. They're coming to a new place. They're separated from their families. And um, I actually, I grew up, I wasn't religious at all. I mean, nominally Catholic, we went like on Christmas and Easter. But I think my parents were pretty shocked when I came back from college actually practicing Catholicism. And so um, do you think, from your experience when you see students, is it more challenging for students to go home when they've lost the faith of their parents or when they have found faith and they haven't been religious? Or are both equally challenging? I think both are equally challenging because at the end of the day, it really is for the parents, they're learning how to parent all new because this is now an independent being. So when you have a child, you want them to be independent. You're teaching them all the time how to walk, how to eat, how to dress themselves. Well, it starts to get, you know, the stakes get higher when they become independent thinkers (laughs) and make some life choices. And so... Parenting, the old ways that you approach parenting don't always apply when it's a young adult. And so as much, I I tell students this, as much as you're changing and you're worried about going home and explaining who you are um, to your parents, they're having to figure out how to parent you. And they're changing too, because the household has shifted because you're not there anymore. Mm -hmm. And the sibling relationships have shifted. So I think it's both. Um, it's a beautiful thing, and there aren't many books written about it. And so, for parents, as you know, as someone who who now has adult children and grand, and now grandchildren, um, I certainly didn't know what I was doing when my <laughs> when my children were in college. And um, it, it, I've been around college students my almost my entire professional career, but definitely changed as a parent. Now, um, as religious affiliation and practices decrease on college campuses, there are many research studies that uh, say that young people are losing their faith, especially on college campuses. How is that affecting or how will it affect the field of college chaplaincy? Uh, I'm, I'm not sure how to answer that because that's not the experience I have at Yale. Our numbers are pretty solid in terms of the students who are active in the different religious and spiritual programs. And even the students who are active in our um, specific interfaith programs may not even be part of a religious community, but they're drawn to something. I think they're drawn to being in community with others to deal with life's tough questions and all the sweetness and the bitterness that they're experiencing. Now, a 2007 nationwide study conducted by the Social Science Research Council found that atheism is much more common among college professors than the U.S. population as a whole. Have you had moments when your chaplaincy duties were made more complicated by faculty? Sure. I can think of two specifics. Um, One is certainly when you have a student who... um, is in a class and the faculty starts talking about a religious tradition in a very discounting and dismissive way. And the student is left to think, okay, do I defend my faith in this moment or am I, am I putting a burden on myself for my grade? I'm being evaluated by this person. It's, it's a, you know, it, it is not a level playing field for this student. I, I hear about that often in an undergraduate setting. In a graduate setting, We'll have students who feel like they have to come out 
um, as a person of faith, um, and they are reluctant to do it lest their advisor not think that they're intellectually on par with others. And so it's a dilemma. And um, sometimes we can work on strategies to uh, ease that a little bit, but it's there. Um, religion can be and often um, earns its reputation for being um, prop highly problematic. But um, a simple dismissal of an entire religious community is completely a mistake. And, um, and to help students learn that they don't have to defend all of Islam or all of Hinduism because of a dismissive remark that a faculty member made in class is a you know, it's an important thing to, to convey to them. Um, the other thing is what we deal with in terms of um, exams that are happening during um, times of, of religious observance when the traditions call for the cease of work and, you know, and often there's fasting. And um, some faculty are very accommodating and they help negotiate with the student alternative times to take the exam and, and um, catch up with schoolwork. But others aren't and are, you know, it's, it's, it's a challenge for, for the student after they've put their needs out and articulated what the observance is, what the laws are for their tradition, um, and to have that just be put aside as a, as a problem. It's not, it doesn't happen in the majority of cases, thankfully, but it is there. Isn't that a sort of prejudice? Oh, sure. It feels very discriminatory. And, um, I think, again, I think most faculty want to work on it and be in collaboration and don't think um, that this student is asking for some sort of special consideration because it's some kind of choice. It's who they are. Uh, and, um, uh, Occasionally, you know, we'll find a solution that works. I've been known to proctor an exam at my house after sundown just so that the student can observe Shabbat. And then when it's okay for her to pick up a pen and write an exam, she does it at my dining room table. Um, so we try to think of ways to accommodate and at the same time um, inform the faculty that, you know, they're not... Um, diminishing the uh, rigor of their course by having a, a good conversation with a student about a compromise. Now, you made history when 12 years ago you became the first woman, the first Catholic, and the first layperson in the position of chaplain at Yale. How did that feel to make history in three distinct ways? The trifecta is what the <laughs> New Haven Register called it. Uh, well, it was overwhelming, of course, um, but it was also um, something that I think I didn't grasp the full history-making part of it until I was actually here and encountering people who were um, curious about what I would do that would make the, chaplain be, the chaplaincy be different um, versus the models that existed before. Um, of the three things, I think the biggest challenge was the fact that I was the first woman. And that kind of surprised me because I figured in 2007 we'd be past that. But um, I think that um, certain institutions are very male in just their, their ethos and the culture. Um, but I have four brothers, and so I grew, I grew up in that. So it didn't really throw me. Once I realized, oh, that's what this is about, that people are noticing – She's decorated her office a certain way. The house looks a certain way. 
Um, and in, and enjoying that, but making note of it that I don't think they would have made had I been a man in this job. Um, I was embraced by the Catholic community um, right from the start. Um, Father Bob Boulogne, um, when he heard I had said yes, uh, the day I had said yes, um, then Dean uh, Harry Attridge took me to Mass at St. Thomas More and whispered in his ear, that I had said yes, and Bob's first reaction was to just open his arms and give me the biggest hug and say, I'm so glad. Um, and so that was a, nothing short of a gift for me and the start of a, of a friendship that um, is, is very important to me. The um, late person part um, felt... Uh, that felt a bit of a challenge too, not so much as the gender. I think because you have such a rich connection with the divinity school that ordains many of its students um, and that having someone in a religious leadership position that wasn't ordained, I think was it was a challenge, something to get used to. Um, but I think once people got to know me and, and understand that the vocation of chaplaincy is not limited to those that can be ordained. I can't be ordained in my tradition, but it's never stopped me from feeling like I um, have a priestly ministry and, um, and have a call, and I'm answering that call the best way I can. Now, in April, House Speaker Paul Ryan dismissed a Catholic priest, Patrick Conroy, from his position of congressional chaplain. Conroy had served as pastoral counsel to members of the U.S. House of Representatives. And afterwards, a Washington Post op-ed about the firing argued that congressional chaplains are unnecessary and that while some Americans, quote, insist that the chaplaincy is an important tradition in the United States, that members of Congress have plenty of religious options. Should members desire a spiritual experience, a wide, a wide array of nearby D.C. clergy stand ready to offer one, end quote. end quote. What do you think about this argument? How are chaplains distinct from local religious leaders? Well, chaplains serve within a community, so they have to familiarize themselves with that particular ecosystem. So I, I remember when I uh, reading that op-ed and thinking, this, they don't get it. They don't get what a chaplain is. You're giving yourself over to this community. And so the, the tense moments around, be it healthcare, taxes, whatever it is, that chaplain's trying to figure out the, the kind of language for prayer that's going to get people to center themselves and understand the weight of what it is they're doing. So the person that's serving at a church or a synagogue several blocks away may know those congresspeople as, as members of their community, but they don't know the ecosystem of that body of Congress and how they work with each other across these different commu faith communities. And so essentially a chaplain is that person that has this ministry of presence because they're around and they're familiar. And chaplains, if you think about military chaplains, you know, they're going through boot camp. They're, go they're in the foxholes. They're there. So they're, it's not about being a, a rabbi in the foxhole. It's about being a chaplain in the foxhole and caring for the people who are doing the heavy lifting and the hard work, um, you, you can't do that remotely. 
um, there's an importance to, you know, the work that happens in those local religious communities for sure. But the ecosystem within a college setting, um, within Congress, in a hospital, um, in a prison, it's, there's no substitute for your presence, for being there, for knowing, for knowing, you know, the, the aides, um, the people who are sweeping the floors, who are serving the meals. That's who a chaplain serves, too. And that's, it's, it's critical to the vocation to know it's, yeah, there's this larger lofty mission of the body of Congress or Yale University, but all the people, all the many threads that weave this thing together are part of who the chaplain ministers to and cares about. Wow. Well, thank you so much for joining us today on the quadcast. There's a lot to think about. So thanks so much. Thanks for having me.